0: the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman and this is The Friedman Report. Well the big story of the last week of course was the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Friday evening September 19th and all the fallout that her death would create and it is creating a huge amount of fallout. This is a story of the impact that one woman can have on the history of our country. Her death will change the direction of our future as we stand at the crossroads of history and move into the unknown. It is also likely to impact heavily on the upcoming election process as the battle over filling her seat on the Supreme Court is already in full swing even before her funeral. Justice Ginsburg was an icon on the Supreme Court. I, I didn't agree with many of her opinions, but I recognized the authority that made her so widely respected. So respected, in fact, that she will be the first woman to lie in state in Washington's capital. She's also the first Jew to lie in state as well. And contrary to what some of the pundits have been saying, her Jewishness was not a footnote in her life. Very little has been written or said about her religion in the coverage that followed her death. But The Guardian wrote about her that she, quote, abandoned her religion, unquote. The Guardian was guilty of superficial and faulty journalism because, although she wasn't an observant Jew, it would be a mistake to overlook this aspect of her life that guided her larger worldview. In 1996, she wrote an essay in which she said, quote, I am a judge born, raised, and proud of being a Jew. The demand for justice runs through the entirety of Jewish tradition. I hope in my years on the bench of the Supreme Court of the United States, I will have the strength and courage to remain constant in the service of that demand, On the wall of her office at court, she had a poster of a Hebrew quote from the Bible that read, Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof, which is the Hebrew for justice, justice shall you pursue. And she used to say that she was the only justice with a mezuzah on the doorpost of her office. A mezuzah is a piece of parchment encased in a decorative case and attached to the doorpost in Jewish homes. And the parchment, which is written by hand by a scribe who is specifically trained to do this, it's inscribed with a prayer, which the words translated to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if you believe in symbolism, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on the evening of the first night of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Since Jewish holidays begin as the sun sets and goes from sunset to sunset, NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg tweeted this. She wrote, quote, A Jewish teaching says that those who die just before the Jewish New Year are the ones God has held back until the last moment, Because they were needed most and were the most righteous. And so it was that hashtag RBG died as the sun was setting last night, marking the beginning of Rosh Hashanah. This idea that a person who passes away on the evening of Rosh Hashanah is holy is based largely on legend and it's not part of Jewish theology. But Rabbi Rick Jacobs, who is the president of the Union for Reform Judaism, He said this What there's no debate about is the significance of her life, the impact of her jurisprudence, and the way in which the Jewish tradition was exemplified by her character. Her death on Rosh Hashanah sent a shudder, certainly through the American Jewish community and beyond. Her life and her legacy cast an enormous light and at the same time a shadow that we're all still trying to make sense of. There is no doubt that in her role as Supreme Court Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a powerful influence on the court. Her death will be mourned and her life will be remembered with respect and honored by the nation as she lies in state in its capital. But this is only the introduction to what will happen next because the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg has ignited a new firestorm as the government decides who shall appoint a new justice to fill her seat on the Supreme Court. And that decision threatens to create a new epicenter as the country continues to splinter into political factions and brings the fight into the streets. Only hours after Justice Ginsburg's death, Threats began to appear on social media to prevent any effort on the part of the Republicans to replace Ginsburg before the election. Iranian American author and former CNN host Reza Aslan tweeted this quote, If they even try to replace RGB, we burn the entire effing thing down. Unquote. He also answered Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's promise to hold a vote on the presidential nominee to fill Ginsburg's seat. Aslan tweeted, over our dead bodies, literally. And Emmett McFarlane, a Canadian professor, put his two cents in when he tweeted, quote, burn Congress down before letting Trump try to appoint anyone to SCOTUS, unquote. Mitch McConnell said immediately that, quote, President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate, unquote. So Democrats are now quoting Mitch McConnell's statement that he made in 2016 after Justice Antonin Scalia died. McConnell said then, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their Supreme Court justice Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president, And on the basis of that opinion, he held up the appointment of a Supreme Court justice until after the election of Donald Trump. But the Democrats are ignoring what Justice Ginsburg said at more or less the same time. She said, quote, The president is elected for four years, not three years. So the power he has in year three continues into year four. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president stops being the president in his last year. That's what Ginsburg told the New York Times in 2016. She told the senators to do their job and consider President Obama's court nominee, Merrick Garland. But before her death, R.B.G. is reported to have told her granddaughter this, quote, My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed, unquote. Well, that's a report, and we can take it at face value. But even if it is true, and we may never know for sure, it has no bearing on the situation at hand today. It is, as she said four years ago, the president whose job it is to make that decision. And the president has made it. So let's look at that decision and the constitutional law that supports it. The Constitution is very clear on this point. It says this, quote, He, meaning the president, shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the Senators present concur, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States. Unquote. Judges of the Supreme Court. There is no qualification regarding any conditions that preclude that obligation. No timetables, no restrictions. So in saying that he will appoint a person to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat on the court, President Trump is simply doing his job as it is described in the Constitution of the United States. Article 2, Section 2. It's very clear. It's unequivocal. What the Democrats and the others on the left are demanding is clearly beyond the scope of what they are entitled to demand. The decision is up to the discretion of the president. So now, since they have no constitutional argument to keep him from nominating a candidate for the vacant seat on the court, they are threatening to impeach him again and to burn down whatever is handy to show their anger. Speaker Nancy Pelosi says that she has, quote, arrows in her quiver, whatever that means. If I guess correctly, she's talking about a plan filled with 30 tricks to destabilize the president and his campaign for re-election, and, if he wins the election, to challenge the results indefinitely. There seems to be no end to the ways in which the Democrats are willing to disrupt the lives of Americans by sabotaging the process of governance in any way possible and they seem to have no concern about the impact that their nasty games will have on the American people. They are already stalled in a second release package because the Democrats in Congress will not allow it to pass. It didn't contain enough money for their favorite causes, so they will penalize the American people for their own intransigence. In the meantime, it is the American people, the ones who elected Our officials in Washington, and whom our elected officials in Washington swore to represent, who are continuing to suffer from the effects of the China virus and the lockdowns, and they are left, because of the Democrats, with no relief. Let me put it simply. The Democrats have failed to represent the interests of the American people. They have failed to protect them in the cities where they are mayors and in the states where they are governors. In New York, for example, they have failed to protect their most vulnerable from the virus, and they let criminals run free in the streets in Washington and Oregon. They have let rioters run loose, looting and burning the cities, destroying the lives of the peoples whose shops and homes they have burned to the ground and in California. They have refused to take responsibility for managing the forests, which are now burning out of control and destroying thousands of homes, killing millions of wild birds and animals for whom the forest is supposed to be a refuge, all this in order to placate the naive nature lovers who think that leaving the forest to Mother Nature is a good idea. They seem to have forgotten that Mother Nature's way of cleaning the forest is to burn it on a regular basis. And in Missouri, where the attorney general has brought charges against a couple for holding legally owned firearms to protect their property from a Black Lives Matter mob. And now the Democrats are talking about trying to impeach the president again if he dares to nominate a judge to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. And their supporters are threatening to burn down the Congress and the cities. And anything else they can find and they want to bring new riots to our streets the democrats have failed to put forward the democrats have failed to stop any of this they have even failed to put forward a credible candidate for president and they are instead promoting a failing old man who was a professional politician instead of a statesman who does not seem capable of completing a sentence, no less a four-year term in the Oval Office. And the ticket has already become the Harris-Biden ticket. In short, folks, we are facing the election of a lifetime. On the one hand, the incumbent has accomplished more in his three and a half years in office than any other president in U.S. history. In restoring the economy, in creating millions of new jobs, in creating new trade agreements that help America instead of hurting us, in deregulating the quagmire of crippling regulations that were strangling small business, and so much more. On the other hand, his opponent is a man who seems to be clearly suffering from some kind of cognitive issues, and whose second is an ambitious woman who apparently thinks that she is the head of the ticket. She's the one who coined the term the Harris-Biden administration. She appears to be looking forward to being the first woman president when he is no longer able to function in that role. And so, in order to put their thumb on the scale for a win in November, the Democrats are sending out tens of millions of mail-in ballots to harvest millions of votes from people who otherwise would not be either able or willing to vote but who will most likely mail in their ballots and vote for the Democrats. They are targeting poor immigrant families, illegal immigrants, dead people, even pets, to fill their need for an election win. And the ballot counting is likely to last for weeks, if not months, because of all these mail-in ballots that have to be counted. The wanton corruption in the Democrat party is so rampant and so ugly that it's difficult for me to wrap my head around it. How is it even possible? But it can't be dismissed because the future of our children and their children and theirs depend on it. Their agenda is transparent, and it may very well make all the difference in this coming election. While Joe Biden is holding a few small campaign events once or twice a week, the president is holding campaigns events almost every day, and his following is huge. Thousands of people show up at every event. We will not be mailing in our ballots. We will be going to the polls and casting our votes in person. We want our votes to be legitimate, and we want them to count. So here we are, my friends, at another major crossroads, And the riots we have seen in the streets of our cities up to now may only be a prelude to something much bigger. The chaos is far from over. Now after the break, we'll talk a little more about this and then we'll go on to some of the other stories of the week. So stay tuned.
1: What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier and boost energy levels, memory and performance. What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? The good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked. But a new, easy-to-swallow sleep gel, invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell, is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy C-E-L-L dot slash sleep. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: Now we are at another major crossroads. This chaos is what the puppet masters with the deep pockets want. They will continue to send their criminals and anarchists into the cities and maybe expand their attacks into the suburbs and the rural communities in order to inflame the divide and fulfill their dream of destroying the fundamental infrastructure of American society. The death of Justice Ginsburg provides them with another opportunity to inflame the already dangerous anarchist and socialist mobs to expand their attacks on civilization by destroying the hearts of our cities. This is how civil war begins. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But that's not to say that there aren't real conspiracies extremely well-documented and well on their way to disrupting our way of life. Democrats who revered Ruth Bader Ginsburg should be shocked and ashamed that this is being done in their names because they should know that this is not at all what she stood for. She was a proud American who stood for the rights of all people, She would be appalled to see that her death was the trigger and the cause of violence and attacks on our government and our Constitution and the values that it represents. So what is going to happen next? Well, here's what we know. The president is going to nominate a conservative judge to replace the late Justice Ginsburg. The Senate will hold hearings. And somehow, Mitch McConnell will push this through the process before the election. That's apparently the plan. Now, Nancy Pelosi says that she has arrows in her quiver. We? <laughs> still don't know what that means. But she's not in the Senate, so she must be conniving with Chuck Schumer, who is. Which is inappropriate at best and possibly impeachable at worst. But she's done this before. Do you remember... When the impeachment trial was going on earlier this year, do you remember how she held on to the articles of impeachment and refused to send them on to the Senate? She told a reporter, quote, "I'll send them over when I'm ready." Unquote. And she later explained that she held up the articles in order to give Senate minority leader Chuck Schumer to give him time to build pressure on Mitch McConnell's. They wanted to include witness testimony as a part of the impeachment process. But remember, this was after weeks of House interviews with a long line of witnesses. Some of these were in secret and some of these were open, but there was a long list of people who actually were interviewed. So, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer wanting to have more witnesses just didn't make a whole lot of sense, but it would prolong the process, which is probably what they were aiming at. Anyway, now Pelosi says she won't rule out impeachment proceedings in order to block a Trump Supreme Court nominee from replacing the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There is no honor among thieves, they say. Well, not much in Congress either, it seems. They will do anything, whatever it takes, to achieve their goals, which in this case, and most cases, I think, is to consolidate their power, their positions, and their wealth. Notice, by the way, when they say they are withholding care payments to Americans suffering from the effect of lockdowns that keep them from going to work, Pelosi and Schumer still get their salaries. They don't take pay cuts to help those Americans who lost their jobs. They still take their vacations, and I think if it weren't for the China virus that keeps them from traveling, they would no doubt be taking their junkets overseas as well. Anyway, now that the elections are getting closer and the polls notwithstanding, Trump seems to be attracting a huge following the Democrats are panicking and pulling out all the stops. Since the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, donations have been pouring into the Democrat coffers, which are being filled by the rich and famous, and there is real concern that the Democrats will carpet bomb the election with anonymous cash, what they call dark money. They already did this in 2018, with far less money than they have now. The Capital Research Center has pulled back the curtain on the sources of this money, and it seems it has been going on for years, right under the noses of our great friends in Washington, D.C., without even a murmur. During the 2018 midterms, one of these groups, the 1630 Fund, which is the lobbying arm of a firm called Arabella Advisors, That's a low-profile consulting firm that acts as a gatekeeper for these secret funders. This 1630 fund pumped $141 million into Democrat campaigns in 2018. According to the Capital Research Center, two mysterious contributions of $51.7 million and $26.7 million were funneled into the 1630 fund. And that fund is part of a larger dark money network and nobody knows where the money came from. That was in 2018. But the same thing is happening this year in the 2020 campaign and it's all being pushed into Democrat races all around the country. This is all part of the Democrat resistance. And my guess is that a lot of it is illegal. Kimberly Strassel, who is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, wrote that dark money is primarily on the Democrat side. She wrote this, quote, Just one of these recent pop-up groups is Demand Justice, a project of Arabella's 1630 fund. The outfit got rolling in early 2018 with the express purpose of combating Republican judicial nominees, and it was a major player in the drive-by hit on Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Almost nothing is known about Demand Justice beyond that it is run by former Hillary Clinton campaign spokesman Brian Fallon." Are you surprised at the level of corruption on the Democrat side? For sure, the Republicans aren't pure and holy, not even close. But they have nothing compared to what the Democrats have built to buy elections, political power, and personal wealth. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that some of the people, like Nancy Pelosi, for example, and celebrities like Don Lemon, are supporting the socialist candidates as well as the rioters and the anarchists. Don Lemon recently said, we're going to have to blow up the entire system, unquote, because the president wants to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. We talked about that before, it's his job. In the meantime, the Democrats are blocking the Republicans' effort to provide support for the American people, and they are supporting the radical socialist agenda of the Democrats. Now, before I go any further, let me give you a definition of socialism. Here it is. An economic and political theory that advocates collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and the distribution of goods unquote. So that's it. The government owns and controls all the means of production and distribution. No more free market, no more private ownership, no more personal responsibility, no more following your dreams. Socialism. Remember those long lines of people in the old Soviet Union waiting for hours for an allotment of toilet paper? Or the formerly middle-class people in Venezuela now finding their food in the garbage? These hypocrites in Washington and on television and in Hollywood, they are themselves wealthy and somehow they must see themselves immune from the poison of socialism that will bring the rest of the country down. Don Lemon is said to be worth about $12 million, and that's a lot. But Pelosi, with her designer face masks and her freezer chock full of pricey ice cream, she's worth a cool $120 million. And they want us to be socialists? America is facing the worst crisis since just before the Civil War, my friends. And by the way, did you know, speaking of the Civil War, that the president who came closest to having Donald Trump's experiences at the hands of political opponents and a hateful press was none other than Abraham Lincoln? Lincoln won the election in a four-way race. He only got 40% of the vote. Election day was November 6, 1860, but he wasn't inaugurated until March 4, 1861. In the course of his four years as president, which ended in his assassination, Lincoln managed to accomplish a great deal. Lincoln led the nation through the Civil War and weathered America's greatest moral, constitutional, and political crisis. He was successful in preserving the Union. He abolished slavery. He modernized the U.S. economy. And he strengthened the federal government but he was hated by many and it is said that his desk and his wastebasket were overflowing onto the floor with poison pen letters from the press and from private citizens. His trip to Washington for his inauguration was a whistle-stop trip. Not that long ago, candidates would get on a train and they would greet people from a little porch on the back car of the train. train would stop, he would come out and greet the people and make a speech. Well, Lincoln's whistle-stop trip started in Springfield, Illinois, and went through Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, and back to Pennsylvania. But then he was warned of an assassination plot in Baltimore, and his security insisted that he travel the rest of the way in secret. His security, by the way, was provided by Alan Pinkerton, who was the founder of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. That was well known in the day and known internationally, in fact. Pinkerton managed Lincoln's security for the entire journey. He traveled through the night and arrived in Washington without fanfare. After that, Lincoln was mocked because of his secret entrance to Washington. The newspapers and the general public decided that they had elected a weak president who was afraid to travel to Washington, and boy, did they let him know it. The similarities between Lincoln and Trump are interesting. Both were unpopular with a large portion of the population and with the press. Both assumed the presidency at a time of great national division. Both entered the White House when the country was threatening a civil war. And both presidents faced a hostile press. Once, at a White House social event, one of the guests complained to Lincoln that the press was, quote, unreliable, unquote. The president disagreed. He said that the press was very reliable. First they lie, and then they re-lie. Fake news, even back then. President Trump lacks Lincoln's gentle humor. And he frequently offends, often on purpose. Many people are quite put off by his style and his off-the-cuff tweets, and there are so many of them. I get that. But when one takes into account his accomplishments as president, and there is a list as long as my arm, it is difficult, at least for me, not to remember the old phrase that I grew up with, it's not what you say in life, it's what you do that defines you. And President Trump is defined by what he has accomplished over the last nearly four years in office. Today, we are living in dangerous times. If you live in a city like New York or Baltimore or Portland, life is probably a little more difficult and sinister than it used to be. Crime is up and some of the police are gone. In some places that used to be safe, it is no longer safe to walk alone or at all. And the fear of the China virus is more than a little daunting, and anxiety over the coming election is growing, no matter which side you're on. The divide between the right and the left has become violent. Whether underground terrorist Bill Ayers, who was quoted in the New York Times on nine eleven, saying quote. I don't regret setting bombs. I feel like we didn't do enough. Unquote. This week, he said something else. He said, quote, Am I the only one, or do you feel eerily like we're living in Kansas, 1859, and that tensions are boiling over? But only years later will people say, Yes, the Civil War began there and then. Unquote. Ayers was referring to a period when Kansas and Nebraska were being settled as new states under the principle of popular sovereignty. That meant the residents could determine whether the area would become a free state or a slave state. It's disgusting when you think about that choice in 21st century terms, but that's how it was back then. People on both sides of the argument flooded into Kansas to try to influence the outcome. Violence erupted very quickly because both factions wanted to seize control for themselves. This became known as Bleeding Kansas, and it was one of the precursors of the Civil War. Today, we are facing the consequences of slavery in our country, and the consequences, the racial discrimination that lasted for more than a century following the Emancipation Proclamation. We've talked about this before, and no doubt we will again. It's a big topic now and an important one. Once again, the United States is being challenged by racial issues, and the big question is whether they will, once again, lead to civil war. So, now as we face the 2020 elections, we want to make sure that we understand something very fundamental. Socialism is not going to solve the problems of racial prejudice that are now inflaming our nation. Ideas like white privilege and Black Lives Matter are themselves racist because they exclude the majority for the comfort of the minority, and it's all based on skin color. So we must find ways to say it better and in a way that is inclusive. Inclusive where no one is outcast or rejected or canceled because of the color of his skin. This is where we are. We have to choose between anarchy and chaos under a government that thinks we are not smart enough to run our own lives, or a nation of free people governed by law and order in which the problems of our society can be solved by people of goodwill. Now, after the break, I'm going to change course and talk about something entirely
2: different. So stay tuned. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way.
0: Congress passed a temporary funding bill in order to keep the government open until December 11th. This will carry the government through the election and the aftermath, which may be very stormy indeed. It's only a temporary stopgap bill, but it will tide the government over through some possibly difficult days. They called it a bipartisan effort. The vote was 359 to 57. I guess most of the members of Congress really didn't want to have to explain to their constituents just how they would justify another government shutdown. So what were the problems that resulted from those no votes? Not really much. There were 56 Republicans who voted no and one Democrat. Oh well. The vast majority voted for it and it of course passed. Well, as usual, there was a lot of fighting and bickering behind the scenes. They were fighting over add-ons that were proposed but were unacceptable to one side or another. The Democrats, for example, objected to the farm aid funding. They said it played political favorites by giving what they called bailout money to farmers and cattle ranchers. Interesting, isn't it, that although the Democrats love to eat, They don't want to help the people who raise the food. And this year has been a nightmare for farmers in the heartland who provide so much of the food for the rest of the country. The combination of droughts, floods, tornadoes, and a massive and totally unexpected derecho, which is what they call an inland hurricane, all hit the farmers this year. The derecho alone destroyed an estimated one-third of the corn crop in Iowa, which is the major corn producer in the country. The farmers and ranchers work on a very small margin, and in a year like this, the damage was extensive. The one thing you may not know, over the last few years, when floods and drought stripped Midwest farmers of their livelihood, suicides among farmers was at an all-time high. So, in short, the farmers who supply our food They sometimes need the help of government subsidies to keep their farms and ranches going. To deprive them of government support is likely to result, you know what, in growing shortages and high prices for staples like milk and pork and beef and chicken and corn and eggs and all the food that we consider necessary for our sustenance. But in the end, Nancy Pelosi restored the farm aid that the administration was insisting on. Another item that was in contention was a higher food benefit that would go to families whose children can't go to school now because the schools are closed due to the China virus, and the subsidy will provide free or reduced price lunches. The money will also extend funding for programs that were set to lapse, like the highway and transit program, or federal flood insurance, and health programs, and so forth. And by the way, It also funds the transition to the new administration if Joe Biden wins the election. Nothing like covering all the bases. It's clear nobody wanted a government shutdown in this election year. It's already so complicated, but a shutdown would really be a bad move for members of either party. The American people would find it completely unacceptable and would blame one party or another, or both. There would be no winners in that scenario. So at least we can move on now, knowing that our government will be open for another two and a half months. Well, that's something, and they agreed on something that's amazing. Okay, let's get real about Black Lives Matter. This has been bugging me for a long time, and it's really time to talk about it. Let's stop treating it as though Black Lives Matter is a soft and squishy human rights organization. It's not. Black Lives Matter activists are the spawn of socialists and Marxists, and they have been raging in our streets, burning, looting, and destroying the life work of others. They are managed by wealthy men and women in plush offices, pulling the strings of their puppets in order to change the course of history and take the affairs of countries out of the hands of the people. And tell me, why haven't the Democrats come out and said unequivocally that these riots must stop? They didn't. In fact, they did just the opposite. They supported them. So let's talk about Black Lives Matter for a minute. This organization was founded after the killing of Trayvon Martin, and it burst into the public eye when they descended on Ferguson, Missouri, in the middle of the riots that erupted after the death of Michael Brown. The co-founders of Black Lives Matter are avowed Marxists. The national organization is financially supported through a leftist group. Its founders, Alicia Garza, Patrice Khan-Cullors, and Opal Tometi, have been described as, quote, three radical black organizers, unquote. The women espouse Marxism and openly push radical identity politics. In a 215 video of an interview with Jared Ball of the Real News Network, Patrice Kahn-Cullors said this, quote, The first thing, I think, is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Myself and Alicia, in particular, are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists, unquote. She was referring to Alicia Garza, another one of the three founders of Black Lives Matter. Cullers herself was a protege of Eric Mann, who was formerly allied with the Weather Underground, a group identified by the FBI as a domestic terror organization. I mentioned it earlier. Now, when someone tells you that she is a trained Marxist, you'd better believe her. So the question is this. If these women who founded Black Lives Matter are Marxists, what does that make the men and women who follow them? Are they all Marxists? Well, the answer is probably not. Many of them are really naive young people who want to do something good, who believe that argument that black people have been marginalized for a long time and that it's time to set the record straight by doing the right thing. But if doing the right thing is but if doing the right thing means marginalizing another group, then what have they accomplished? And that is exactly what's happening here. And there's more. These naive young people are not the only ones out there on the streets. They are marching and holding candles and singing and shouting slogans. But there's another group, and these guys are paid agitators, anarchists and Marxists who are flown in or bused in from other cities and from out of state, and they mingle in with the Black Lives Matter protesters. There's a difference, you see, between protesters and rioters. The naive ones, the young people who really believe in what they're doing, They're the protesters and they don't generally engage in violence, but the people who come in from out of town, from out of state, the anarchists and the Marxists, they are paid to create violence, to destroy, to set fires, to shoot people if necessary. Their whole idea is that they need to create chaos and destruction and make people unhappy and angry, and who pays them? We've talked about this a number of times before. They're paid by fat cats with deep pockets who hide behind a network of not-for-profit organizations. We've seen the result of their work in Portland and Milwaukee and Seattle and Chicago and New York City. Do you remember the riots in New York City way back in June, early June, June 3rd. Hordes of young men descended on the city and they went to the upscale neighborhoods and stores. Soho, the first night, and then Herald Square, the second night, where they invaded Macy's flagship store. They broke windows and ran into the store, stealing whatever they could, and then loaded all of their loot into SUVs worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is crazy. They couldn't afford vehicles like that. Do you think that any of these young hooligans and criminals could do that, could pay for something like that? Not a chance. They were paid and their vehicles were supplied. And then there was a raid in San Francisco on an upscale car dealer. A whole army of young criminals descended on this dealership and they stole, are you ready for this? 70 upscale cars from this lot, seven zero. This was a well-organized heist. This was no spontaneous event. It would have made any self-respecting car thief proud and deeply impressed. The point is that these operations are planned They're paid for, and they're executed according to instructions. And so are the riots, where the rioters loot and burn. I told you that I'm not a conspiracy theory. I'm not. These operations are planned. The participants receive some training, or at least instructions, and then they are set loose on the target neighborhood. This is no joke. This is the beginning of a revolution, and it's coming to a neighborhood near you if it hasn't gotten there already by now. It's not over, not by a long shot. In fact, the threats about what is coming next are really bombarding social media. Don Lemon talked about destroying the whole system. Others talk about burning down Congress or the cities or more. Their message is clear. If Democrats do not regain power, if Joe Biden is not elected, then the people will drive the nation into civil war. Now, here's a question. How many people are they talking about? How much damage can they do? Are we talking about 100, 1,000, 100,000? Well, we've seen already how much damage only a relatively few people can do to a neighborhood. The number of cities that have been attacked are growing. They are mostly cities managed by Democrats. And just this week, The mayor of Louisville declared a state of emergency in anticipation of a verdict relating to the killing of Breonna Taylor by police in her own home in the middle of the night. And in Seattle, the city council voted to override the mayor's veto of cuts in the police budget. They voted 7-2 to to cut police funding by $3 million. What will that mean to Seattle? That bill will remove as many as 100 officers from various units. With 100 fewer officers on the street, crime will soar, just like it did in New York. And still, the long-range plan is to defund the police by 50%. It's insane. So this is what is being threatened and we've already had a taste of it. This is not the America I grew up in, and it's not the America in which I want to bring up my children or my grandchildren. This America is torn and tattered. It's coming apart at the seams because the Democrat mayors and governors no longer have respect for the America we love and we want to keep. They are allowing this America to be destroyed from the inside. There are some fairly straightforward reasons why this is happening. A lot of it has to do with the education we've been giving our children over the past decades. We have turned their education over to teachers who have been trained to instill in them the lessons of Marx and socialism, and we have let it happen. I've talked about this before, and I think in the near future, I will devote a whole program to this subject. It's critical to the future of our country and of our children and of our communities. But for today, I wanna just point out that there are reasons that this is happening in America. These young people were never taught to love this country. What they learned was socialism and entitlement. So they're taking what they have never earned And they're getting paid for it. So we have two major challenges. The first is clearly the rioters and the destroyers whose mission is to create chaos in our cities and who now threaten to do much more if Joe Biden doesn't win the election. This is what happens in a dictatorship. It's a threat. And it is as un-American as it can be. It will not be tolerated. We have already talked about the ballot mill that the Democrats have championed, known as mail-in voting. And that's only the beginning, because we've also talked about the millions of dollars of dark money going into the campaigns of Democrat candidates, and now the threats of civil war if Biden is not elected. The second challenge is the election itself. The Democrats have already told us that they have tricks up their sleeves and lots and lots of money flowing into their coffers. Where did all this money come from? We don't know, and they're not telling us. So we have to win this election on our own. The president is doing a fantastic job going around the country and talking to thousands of people. Every rally, thousands of people. He's making a difference. And in a fair election, he would win in a landslide. But with all those millions of unverified mail-in ballots, it may still be an uphill battle anyway. The election is rigged, and if the Democrats have their way, they will do whatever is necessary to make sure that they win. The real enemy, the fat cats with the deep pockets, are hiding behind their wealthy not-for-profits. They're pathetic. They're cowards. But they're trying to run the show. This is not okay. Not in America. Not in my America. There is room in my America for everyone who is here legally. There is room in my America for free elections without duress or threats or cheating. In my America, we can discuss the issues openly And without sarcasm or name-calling or anger, in my America, we can solve our problems together. We can compromise. We can agree to disagree and remain friends. That's the America that I grew up in. It's the America I love. It's the America that created a light for the world. And I'm not giving up. Well, we've come to the end of another hour, my friends. I want to thank you for spending it with me. I wish you a good week, a healthy week, a safe week. And I look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.